Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 15th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Not to make excuses, but I postponed our John commentary until next week. One of the things that I've neglected since the hurricane and being burdened with all the chores related to that is tech work at Christagenia, and and I actually had a backup server crash because it was full. A two terabyte server that backs up Christagenia.org and the MindConf project and the forum rather regularly every night actually crashed because it was full and it took me over a day to rectify that situation. I'll have to spend more time on tech work in the weeks to come or I'll inevitably have more problems. I mean, I've been doing what was necessary for me to do these last five or six months, but no more than that, and more is obviously required. So tonight we're going to present the Arab question, part three. We're going to continue to deal with this discussion of Arabs, at least until we get through Clifton's papers on the subject, And then I may eventually take it a step further to discuss in greater detail the satanic beginnings and nature of Mohammedism or Islam. Up until this point, we hope to have fully demonstrated that all Arabs are bastards, even by the very meaning and origination of the Hebrew term, and that Jews and Arabs are from the same stock, being mixed not only with Israel, Ishmael, and Edom, but also with the descendants of Peleg and Joktan, Midian, and Abraham's other sons with Keturah, and more importantly, with all of the tribes of the ancient Canaanites, along with the Kenites, Rephaim, and other and darker races. Surely there are other white nations also in the mix, such as Greeks and Romans, and the more ancient white nations of Africa, Mesopotamia, and the Near East. Since long before the rise of Islam, Arabs have freely and unabashedly intermingled with sub-Saharan Africans, and had brought them and their mulatto offspring with them wherever they were able to settle. The Arab slave trade spread the Negro blood to places as far east as Malaysia, the Philippines, and China. But significantly, this is why many southern Europeans of today are no longer white. And this is also the strain that was spread into the Caribbean and South and Central Americas in the Spanish and Portuguese settlement of those areas. Before the series is over, we may find that the label Latino really isn't a direct derivative of the word Latin, and neither are the people who bear the name. I also hope to demonstrate that not only are Jews and Arabs prominent among the forebears of the so-called Latinos, but are also the ancestors of many Mexicans. In the first two parts of this series, 
We employed Clifton Emmerheiser's papers, Arabs, friend or foe, and both Jews and Arabs are serpent seed, both of which were written in 2006 as the basis for our discussions. Now we shall employ a third paper, which is also somewhat of a recapitulation of the first two, and which Clifton had first prepared for publication in December of 2007. So here is Clifton's misconception of Arabia and Arab peoples. And he opens by saying, most Christians familiar only with the scripture would reply upon a request to define these terms that the Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael the son of Abraham by Hagar which a few of them can partially claim. In addition these same unenlightened people believe that all Arabs today are pure Semites or Shemites, and are somehow cousins to the true Israelites. Both of these assumptions are dangerously flawed, and the terms Arabia and Arab are almost impossible to define. I don't think it's impossible, but it's just impossible for them to define. And therefore they hardly deserve to be capitalized. This paper will be an attempt to set the record straight. In his papers, Clifton refused to capitalize the words Arab or Arabia, which I have capitalized, if only for the sake of people finding our material through the search engines. This he did mostly because capitalizing the term Arab is really like capitalizing the term mongrel. If mongrel does not merit capitalization, then neither should Arab. Clifton continues, as the term Arabia is ambiguous as to a land area, so too is the term Arab as to a people. Ambiguous is an accurate expression, as one of its synonyms is dusky, meaning shadowy, a condition of not being entirely light nor entirely dark. I will now endeavor to, to address the term Arabia as a landmass. My first source for doing so will be gleaned from the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church by James Hastings, volume 1, page 88. I will not quote from it directly, but tailor it in my own words, Clifton's words. In our day, he says, Arabia denotes the great peninsula lying between the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. But in ancient times, it was a singularly elusive, and Clifton has, in parentheses, evasive or slippery, it was a singularly elusive term. Its ancient usage was simply desert or desolation, and I will disagree on that momentarily. But later, when it became an ethnographic proper name, if such a thing is possible, it took an extended time period in acquiring a fixed and generally understood meaning. Arabia, as a landed area, shifted from time to time like the nomads who occupied it, like the shifting sand, 
It did not denote a country whose boundaries could be negotiated by treaty, shown by landmarks, or set down in a map. It was a vast area of vague demarcation with a character and history of its own. Now, while most of this is accurate, I would take issue with the claim that Arabia in ancient times was simply desert or desolation. More accurately, I would believe that Arabia had gotten its name because it was the home of many different tribes that had all eventually intermarried with one another or had absorbed or been absorbed by neighboring tribes stronger than they. The lawlessness of the desert tribes is evident in the opening chapter of the book of Job, for example, where Job's estates were pillaged by the Sabians, a tribe of the descendants of Joktan, if not of Ham, and we will discuss that momentarily. There is also a pattern of behavior among the Canaanites, which is notable in the Old Testament that they sought to intermarry with neighboring tribes in order to form alliances of peace and enhance the prospects of trade and other forms of mutual cooperation. This is the basis for globalism and multiculturalism today, and its source is with the same Canaanite merchants who came to control ancient Babylon. We have already discussed the fact that the Arabization of the Caribbean and Central and South America went on at the same time that the Spanish and Portuguese were colonizing those areas. It could be shown that Brazil is named after the Hebrew word for iron and Aruba is from a Hebrew word for a trading emporium. My interpretations of these terms differ from the usual explanations. If you look up Wikipedia or any other mainstream source, you will certainly not see my interpretations. But I would insist that my interpretations are more truthful. The word Aruba. Look at Strong's Hebrew number 6161. Aruba is basically a bargain or exchange and uncoincidentally that word is a feminine participle form of 6148 Arab which is to intermix the idea of trade and the idea of intermingling one with another go hand in hand the name Brazil, I am persuaded, comes from the Hebrew word Barzel, Strong's number 1270 in his Hebrew lexicon. Barzel means iron. The following is from a Brazilian website called the Scientific Electronic Library Online in an article titled The Iron Ores of Brazil written by one Orville A. Derby and it was written sometime around 1910. The colonial records of Brazil register the fact 
that about 1590, an exploring party that set out from the town of Sao Paulo, founded about 40 years before, reported the finding of iron ore in a mountain situated about 100 kilometers to the southward. Gold and silver were also reported from the same region, and acting on this information, the Portuguese government took measures to promote the mining industry in the colony by sending out, in 1597, officials especially charged with this mission. The inclusion of an iron founder in the party indicates a special interest in the discovery of iron ore. One or two small forges were set up which commenced to produce iron, probably about the year 1600, and continued in the activity to about 1629. The place subsequently took the name of Ipanema, which has ever since been inseparately connected with the long, though not brilliant, history of the iron industry in Brazil. There's a typo in the article that should have been inseparably, not inseparately, and I will fix it as I present this. There is a reasonable probabili probability that the iron produced here was the first to be manufactured on the American continent. About the same time, a forge was established close to the town of Sao Paulo in order to work the lean, agrilaceous ore that abounds in the vicinity. But it, referring to the forge, does not seem to have had a prolonged existence. Now, understanding this, this history of the early decades of Brazil, Nobody is going to convince me that Brazil was not named by Jews after the Hebrew word for iron, Barzel. It appears as Barzel in Strong's Concordance. But one must keep in mind that those vowels were not in the original Greek. Uh, I'm sorry, in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew had the Aleph and the Yod, which are sort of like consonantal vowels in Hebrew. But the true vowels were added by vowel points by the Masoretic rabbis and weren't decided on or weren't definite until well after the New Testament period when the Masoretic rabbis added vowel points to Hebrew. The original Hebrew having no vowel points, Barzel, Brazil, there's no difference. Brazil is the world's leading producer of iron to this day, having five of the 11 largest known deposits and the four largest. Five of those are the four largest deposits of iron, known deposits of iron ore. And that's according to the industry website Mining Technology. The motivating forces for the Iberians, when I say Iberians, I mean Spaniards and Portuguese, in their endeavor to expand into the Americas was the aspiration to empire and the dominance of trade. From the earliest times, and all that iron, if it was used efficiently and if it could all be used, would have given Portugal a great military advantage over her European 
her, her European rivals. From the earliest times, the concept of alliances through race mixing to create peace, coupled with the furtherance of free and open trade, has been the objective of every nation seeking its own empire. After the decline of the Iberians, it was the objective of the British and American empires. Open trade, open borders, multiculturalism, peace among the races, and we still suffer under that today. This is the basis for what the scriptures refer to as Mystery Babylon, and the series of world empires described beforehand in the words of the prophets. It's what every empire was based on. Peace for the sake of trade, so that one government, the government which created the empire and was able militarily to advance it, so that one government would rule over everyone peaceably for the sake of free trade. That's the basis of Mystery Babylon. That's the basis of the way the world operates today. I wrote about changing religious attitudes in the transition from nation to empire in a rather strange place. In the introduction to my presentation of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, subtitled Even Vanity is Vanity, here in April of 2018. In order to reach its objective of world peace and open free trade among all tribes and races, an empire, those who control the government of an empire, must also control its economy and its religion. In April of 2018, citing ancient Egyptian literature in that last installment of my commentary on Ecclesiastes, as Egypt began to transition to an empire even before the time of Abraham, a prophet of their own, named Ipu Wur, lamented that a man regards his son as his enemy. A man of character goes into mourning because of what has happened in the land. Foreigners have become people everywhere. Now, in recent American history, a process began after the war between the states, or the war of northern aggression, and didn't end until the final victory of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. And that process sought to make Negroes people everywhere. And we see the result of that. We see the destruction of our society, our culture, and all of our cities which is still ongoing for the sake of commercialism, peace among all, and open trade, and free trade. And it's the international corporations that have driven that bus for the last 200 years in America.
ever since the beginning they've been pushing us in that direction. Other documents show that the religion of Egypt was transformed into a universalist religion during that same period and I have cited them in that presentation on Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It is also apparent that in northern Mesopotamia in the time of Abraham the process of Arabization that's what happens with multiculturalism multiculturalism cannot fail to produce a process of Arabization diversity cannot fail to produce a process of Arabization of all peoples in the time of Abraham in northern Mesopotamia the process of Arabization had already begun there just the other day I wrote the following in a post on social media and I said I really think that we cannot locate any distinct nation or government that we can identify with Arphaxad Arphaxad a son of Shem the first listed son of Shem in Genesis chapter 10 now of Shem's other sons we can identify the nations which they had become Aram Elam and the rest of them but not Arphaxad we can't identify or discover what nation he may have become because in prehistoric times it must have been dissolved and absorbed into the Hittite Empire and then later mixed into the Hurrians who are the Horites of Scripture and the Mitanni Kingdom and ultimately what was left of it became incorporated into the Assyrian Empire it is hard to tell but it is a subject I have always wanted to study in greater depth if it could even be attained I'm not sure if I could find the information to help me study the issue further this early mixing with Hittites and Hurrians is what I believe Abraham was called out from and why he was sent to Canaan where he seems to have been among people who were the most different from himself in all of the Middle and Near East being the most different circumcision was then added to maintain the distinction but that is just my opinion and one of my social media musings in a conversation with a friend the Hebrew laws against race mixing as well as the early practice of circumcision helped to preserve at least most of the ancient children of Israel from Arabization after the Assyrian deportations they were preserved simply by a matter of geography until the adoption of Christianity caused another religious polarization with the Jews who are the Canaanites and Edomites of antiquity by the time that the so-called lost tribes accepted Christianity most of the rest of the old Adamic nations of the Near and Middle East were thoroughly Arabized now some naive people may contend that the Arabs get circumcised also but if you study Flavius Josephus the Arabs were not getting circumcised before the invention of Islam early Arabs were not being circumcised 
As another digression, the Romans called Arabia after the name Arabia Felix, which may be translated as Arabia the Happy, Arabia the Lucky, or Fortunate, or Prosperous, or even Fertile Arabia. Evidently, in ancient times, it was not really a desert at all, but perhaps more like a Wild West wilderness. Now, continuing with Clifton, where he is speaking of Old Testament times, to the settled races occupying Mesopotamia, Syria, and Palestine, Arabia meant any part of that uncultured hinterland skirting the confines of civilization, which was the camping grounds of wandering tribes forever hovering around peaceful towns waiting for an opportunity to spread terror among their inhabitants in raids on their food supply, burning homes, killing the men and raping their women. It amounted to a dim border region not so wholly unproductive as to be incapable of supporting life, interposed between cultivation and the sheer wilderness. So uncertain was the application of the term Arabia that there was no part of the semi-desert fringe area extending from the lower Tigris to the lower Nile, which was not, at one time or another, referred to as such. To the prophets of Israel, Arabia had one meaning, while on Persian inscriptions it had yet another, and to the Greek writers yet another. Thus, Arabia became a generally used term for various hinterlands peculiar to each individual writer. To Hastings' description of the raids by early Arabs, I made an embellishment. This is Clifton's words. For women were treated as spoils, and with the shifting sand came shifting races. And that's absolutely true. In contrast, when the children of Israel conquered Canaan, of the Canaanites they were to slay every man, woman, and child. But when they conquered the Midianites, who were descendants of Abraham and his third wife, Keturah, and who were ostensibly white, they were allowed to keep virgin females to themselves as booty, women being property in those days. The wife of Moses had also been a Midianite. After the conquest of Canaan, the law forbid the people from intermingling with Canaanites and others, while those of certain nations could become a part of Israel only if they proved allegiance over several generations. So while it was never followed perfectly at all times, the Hebrew laws did help to maintain the racial characteristics of the people. But the other nations of the region typically had no such laws. And marriage was usually a mere business arrangement when it wasn't forced upon a woman who was only a prize in war. Clifton continues, In the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia under the topic Arabia and the subtopic Inhabitants, 
Upon explaining an Arab connection to the quote-unquote Caucasoid race, we read, speaking of the Arabs as a people, the people of the Arabian Peninsula are Arabs, members of the Semitic subgroup of the Caucasoid race. In other words, the evolutionary biologists who write those things think that the Arabs are like white people, even if they're not quite white people. With some admixture of the Caucasoid groups and of Negroids from Africa in the coastal areas. The Negroid admixture is due chiefly to the importation of slaves from Africa, which was an active trade until recent years. Now, Clifton responds to that citation, and he says, While this is an important admission, the Arabs had mixed their race since time immemorial. It is evident from the language of this short quotation that by 1980, when this Collier's Encyclopedia was published, the civil rights movement was well on, already well underway, and the tone of the writer's words seemed to imply that today an admixture with the Negroid should not be considered a stigmatizing phenomenon. <laughs> it ain't a bad thing, right? Well, it certainly is. But if you're an Arab, it really doesn't matter anyway. Clifton says, I must now make known some little-known facts concerning traditional Arab beliefs. About half of them claim descent from Ishmael, while the other half claim descent from Joktan, who is recorded as being the brother of Peleg, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, an ancestor of Abraham. Like most poorly informed Christians, I was aware of the Ishmael connection, but totally oblivious to that of Joktan. I first gained the information on Joktan by reading some of Nord Davis's literature. I then discovered that Nord was correct when I found the same data about Joktan in the History of the Jews by Heinrich Gretz, Volume 3. Since these two finds, I have found many references to Joktan being the father of the Arab people. But it is parallel to a similar claim by the bad fig Jews to be Israelites. It is evident that alien peoples dwelt in and or moved into the geographic area which the descendants of Joktan once occupied in what is now southern Arabia or have been absorbed or been absorbed by Joktan's descendants, claiming Joktan's heritage. Of course, it cannot be told whether Jokhtan's descendants did themselves, through raids, pillage, and rape, gradually absorb the genetics of various alien peoples, or whether they were victims of such. The Sabians, as recorded at Job, were descendants of Jokhtan, who was a white man, but one can read in Job the pillage they did of Job's possessions. In those ancient times, Usually, rape was part of the plunder. Actually, it was more than that. They would actually take possession of the women and make permanent slaves out of them. All we know today is that the Arabs are not white, so it is glaringly apparent that something drastic happened to their genetic makeup along the line somewhere.
Among the early inhabitants of what is now known as Arabia are not only the descendants of Joktan, but also the Hamites descended from Cush, namely those of Sheba, the Sabians, Havilah, Ramah, and Dedan. These groups are identified in Arabia in the historical scriptures, such as where the land of Havilah is placed in Arabia, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. However, in that account, the people of Havilah aren't the descendants of Havilah. They are Amalekites who were often allied with various Canaanite tribes as early as Genesis chapter 14, but whose origins are not mentioned in Scripture. The Amalekites are not found in Genesis chapter 10, not so far as I've seen. As for the, I'm sorry, I, I almost missed a sentence. Later, later on, now the Amalekites are mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Later on, I think in Genesis chapter 36 or something like that, Esau had a son named Amalek. But his descendants should not be confused with those earlier Amalekites. As for the Sabians of Job, it is impossible to tell whether they are of the Seba or Sheba of Genesis 10.7, chapter 10, verse 7, who was a son of Cush, or the Sheba of Genesis chapter 10, verse 28, a son of Joktan. But in the days of Moses, Arabia was called the land of Cush from whom also came Nimrod, and for which the early Greek writers had called the entire area the Ethiopia of the East, as opposed to the Ethiopia to the south of Egypt. So therefore, the Sabians were more likely from Ham than from Shem, although linguistically the Arabs speak a Semitic language. Furthermore, Language does not identify a race. Today, we have all sorts of races in America speaking English which are not descended from the English. 130 million Mexicans now speak Spanish, but none of them are actually Spanish. Africans in Haiti speak French even over 200 years after the Negroes had slaughtered the last of the white French settlers there. The lingua franca of the Middle East and the Near East was Aramaic, a Semitic language, for hundreds of years before the arrival of the Hellenistic period. And all of those trading or under the rule of Babylon and Persia spoke the language. During the period of Greek dominance, Aramaic persisted among the natives, and long after the passing of the Greeks, 
the native tribes of Arabia and Syria all continued to speak their own dialects of Aramaic. One of the variation, one variation of the language which is now known as Arabic. Arabic is a, I'm sorry, Arabic is a variation of Aramaic. And they still, Arabs still speak it today. Clifton proceeds once again by citing Nord Davis, whom he justly criticized in his earlier papers on this subject. Nord Davis said the following in his 1990 booklet, Desert Shield. I read that booklet and I didn't like it, but I don't remember much about it. On page 49, my teacher's historical panorama of Arabia, with its people descending from Shem through Joktan, the brother of Peleg, began to open the eyes of those who make a study of racial backgrounds and peoples. Now, I'm going to respond to that quickly. Of course, we have already shown that Nord Davis's so-called teacher was not very accurate. Now, Clifton's citation of Nord reveals that his teacher is not even white, but was himself an Arab. Relying upon an Arab for history, whose ancestors never preserved their history, and did not even have a common history being of many different races, is sort of like relying on a dog to describe its own pedigree. See what kind of answer you get from your dog. Thus he continues. About three years ago, my friend made a whirlwind tour of America, speaking to 50 groups in 36 states, telling these Christian Americans the story of Joktan and the Queen of Sheba. One of his stops was at North Point Team Headquarters here in the Smoky Mountains, which was only Nord Davis's house. He spoke to us regarding the urgency of getting a pro-Arab public relations effort going to prevent the upcoming war in the Middle East. Now, in our opinion, Nord Davis, being a white Christian, should not have cared how many Jews and Arabs destroy one another. But it is even more naive to imagine that any mere citizen could dissuade the Zenith-controlled government and churches in America from a war which they hope fulfills their own political, economic, and religious objectives. As I have said in other contexts, modern Protestant dispensationalism is the best religion that Jewish money could buy for its own Zionist objectives. Now, Clifton responds to the citation from Nord Davis, and he says, excuse me, about six years after this publication, Nord died of cancer. Nord was a tremendously gifted two-seed-line Bible teacher. I never remembered talking to Clifton about Nord Davis, honestly. I don't know why he thought this. Maybe the guy deserves the credit for it. I don't know. But he was way off base on the Arab question. So to me, he couldn't have understood two-seed-line too well. Clifton says, But I have often wondered whether or not Yahweh took him home to prevent his involvement with the multi-breed Arabs. 
Now, Davis died just six weeks before his 66th birthday, so that certainly does seem to be a little premature. I will now cite the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica under the topic Arabia and subtopic Origins of Koreish, K-O-R-E-Y-S-H, where one of the editors scoffingly, scoffingly remarks, in this assembly, the immediate local proximity of the Koraish chiefs, joined to their personal wealth, courage, and address, assigned them a predominant position. Of their pedigree, which, as is well known, includes that of Muhammad himself, and we will talk further on in the series about these Koraish Arabs in relation to Muhammad and Islam, but we won't get into it this evening. Of their pedigree, which, as is well known, includes that of Muhammad himself, we have a carefully, too carefully indeed for authenticity, constructed chronicle bringing the family tree up in due form to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, of whom the Koraish figure as the direct descendants in the same artificial annals, the Yemenite or genuine Arabs appear under the cousinly character of the children of Joktan, the son of Heber. On these points, all Mohammedan analysts are equally positive and distinct, all other Arab testimony equally adverse or silent. In other words, this is a fable created by the creators of Islam. They continue in that encyclopedia that a fable so utterly defiant of reasonable chronology and even of the common sense of history itself should have been adopted as matter of fact by Arab vanity and ignorance is less surprising than it should have found favor in the eyes of a few indeed of most, of not a few, indeed of most of our own European writers, probably most of whom are Jews, they seem to have taken these fables of Arab origins in biblical figures and they ran with them and they still do to this day. Now it is probably true that at least many Arabs descended from either or a combination of Joktan, Peleg, and Ishmael. But no Arab can provide a concise genealogy proving that, and all Arabs also have the blood of Canaan, the Kenites, the Rephaim, and many other and more modern, or more recently introduced, I should say, alien tribes. So an Arab tracing himself to a particular patriarch in scripture is really no different than any Southwest Plains Indian with a marginal degree of Spanish blood claiming to be a descendant of Isidore of Seville. He may as well claim descent from Don Quixote. In truth, Islam was devised by Jews, and the Arab genealogy was contrived to make it appear as if it had a legitimate connection to Hebrew patriarchs. The Quran is partly Jewish fable, 
partly a Talmudic interpretation of the law, and partly a plagiarizing of Hebrew and apocryphal scriptures. There is only one legitimate Abrahamic religion, and that is Christianity. The only Arab tribe which may possess, and I say may, which may possess a definite and historically verifiable connection to a definite biblical figure are the Nabataeans, who maintain their name and identity throughout the Babylonian and Persian periods and at least until the time of imperial Rome. They are mentioned in ancient inscriptions of the Persians and Babylonians as well as in Greek histories. In my opinion, the name comes from Nebaioth, a son of Ishmael, who is mentioned in Genesis chapters 25, 28, and 36. However, even if that connection is valid, and it seems to be, in early times the Nabataeans had also mingled with Edomites and other tribes of the Canaanites, and also with other races since then. The Nabataeans had evidently taken over for themselves the land of the Edomites, who had, in the 6th century BC, migrated into Palestine after the deportations of Israel and Judah. And they dwelt there in Roman times, in the ancient land of Edom, and were known by that name to Greek writers such as Strabo of Cappadocia. In fact, Strabo even thought that the Edomians, or Edomites in Judea, were originally Nabataeans, knowing where they had come, knowing from where they had come. And he only distinguished them, the Edomites and the Nabataeans, because the Edomites were in Judea and mingled with the Judeans, as he also described. Clifton continues by discussing Peleg. <coughs> Most commentaries ignore by skipping over or making little comment on the genealogy of Peleg and Joktan in Genesis chapter 10 verse 25. But the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary on the Old and New Testaments shows, although maybe not perfectly, an awareness of a connection of the Arabs to Joktan, saying, There is no special distinction attached to Eber. I would contend with that, but I don't think I did here in his notes. He is only a link in the genealogical chain. The Hebrews never rested on him as their progenitor, and on the contrary, he is mentioned as the common ancestor of that people and the Arabians. And of course, we can't completely agree with that, but the name Eber means one who crosses over, and was certainly prophetic of the future of the Hebrews as a race which lie in the children of Israel. Peleg or Phaleg, the Septuagint, 
and they define it as division and they say for in his days the earth was divided of course this is the Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary the natural view of these words implies a reference to a formal division of the earth that's the first mistake which as has been thought from several passages of scripture and Clifton never really tells us he leaves an ellipsis so perhaps I should have actually looked up the fuller passage but I didn't I'm sorry others are of the opinion that extensive landslips occurred the sea bursting through many parts of the solid land and forming straits and gulfs or separating continents and that it was to such breaches the dividing of the earth refers and that's the cartoon comic book interpretation a third class supposed that the allusion is not to the general dispersion of Noah's descendants now that may have been the idea set forth in the first example or interpretation which Clifton skipped over it seems to be a third class suppose that the allusion is not to the general dispersion of Noah's descendants but to a division in Eber's family the Joctanidoi leaving the paternal settlement in Mesopotamia to which the elder branch adhered meaning the Peleg the, the descendants of Peleg, migrated into southern Arabia, the old Arabia Felix, the Yemen. This view would necessitate the bestowment of the name Peleg at an advanced period of his life. The common interpretation of the passage is preferable to any of these, that being that it was the division of the tribes, which is what I would agree with, but Clifton doesn't quite get there continuing his citation the posterity of Peleg are neither forgotten nor overlooked but reserved to the next chapter meaning Genesis chapter 11 now Clifton responds to the article and I'm not going to agree entirely with his response but I'll address it after his response whatever all of this dividing of the earth business is about it surely isn't speaking of a continental drift as some surmise the term earth would be better rendered land and Clifton did very well right there that's exactly truth and there are many possibilities for such a land division and there I wouldn't agree Many times when an estate is settled upon the death of a large landholder, the land is divided among his descendants. Now we're getting there, Clifton, but he doesn't quite reach it. At other times, it became necessary to divide the land due to a lack for supporting cattle herds, such as between Abraham and Lot. Peleg was so named, for in his days the earth, or land, was divided and Clifton has land in parentheses there the text of Genesis chapter 10 verse 25 and first Chronicles chapter 1 verse 19 do not say that this notable division came at Peleg's birth but in his days in other words his name did not mean division at birth now this part I won't agree with either but this is Clifton's contention but his name Peleg acquired that meaning later. 
Had the meaning meant continental drift, that would have all happened during his lifetime, which is illogical, as the hypothesis for a continental drift is theorized to have taken many thousands of years to develop. Whatever else this division might be about, we know that the descendants of Peleg appeared in Mesopotamia, while the descendants of Joktan appeared at various places in South and Southwest Arabia, as per the book of Job. Genesis chapter 10 verse 30 says, From Mesha, as thou goest unto Sephar. The Greek Septuagint has translated the name Mesha as Massa, the name of an Ishmaelite whose descendants appear to have settled in northern Arabia. Citing Genesis chapter 25. The location Sephar, while uncertain, also suggests a location in southern Arabia, agreeing with the book of Job. Now, Clifton is correct concerning the descendants of Peleg and Joktan here. However, I must elaborate on Peleg, where I may disagree with him to some extent. Genesis chapter 10 describes the division of the land among the various grandsons of Noah, and in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, where Peleg is first mentioned, who was a great-great-great-grandson of Noah, we read, For in his days was the earth divided. So it should be rather clear that it was in Peleg's time that the land was divided among the sons of Noah, because that is the context in which the statement was made. The event is recollected in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, where we read that when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So Genesis chapter 10 describes how the land was going to be divided. But Genesis chapter 11 is a recapitulation which describes why it was divided. Then, in that chapter, we see another recapitulation of the genealogy from Shem down through Peleg, and it is brought further along down to the patriarch Abraham, who, with his own offspring, from that point forward, becomes the entire focus of the scriptures. The line is Shem, Arphaxad, Salah, Eber, and then the brothers Peleg and Joktan. Even the original Strong's Concordance says, under Joktan, at number 3355, that Joktan was an Arabian patriarch. And although no particular genealogy could ever be set forth to prove that, it is evident in history that his descendants became amalgamated into the people now known as Arabs. Strong's Concordance says that Peleg means earthquake. However, to me, that seems to reflect Strong's own interpretation of the statement that in his days was the earth divided, with which I cannot agree. Nothing happened to the earth geologically in Peleg's time, but rather 
The land was divided amongst the various Adamic tribes descending from Noah. The name Peleg, found at Strong's number 6389, and if you look at all the words before and after 6389, is part of a group of words describing division or the act of dividing in one form or another. So the word for division did not come from the name as Clifton speculated. Rather, Peleg was so named ostensibly because the dividing came in his time and many biblical names are actually prophetic of the events which were to come during a particular individual's lifetime. For example, Abram was the original name of Abraham and it means exalted father which was indeed prophetic of the life of the patriarch. But there's no indication that he was given the name Abram late in his life. His name was Abram from birth. It was changed to Abraham, which has a slightly different meaning late in his life. If we examine the more accurate chronology of Scripture, as it is presented in the Septuagint. We see that the flood of Noah was about 2262 years from the creation of Adam. And rounding the numbers, Peleg was born about 530 years after that. Abraham was born about 700 years after the birth of Peleg. Since Peleg lived for nearly 240 years, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, the land was divided sometime between 530 and 770 years after the flood. So, the land was divided anywhere from 700 to 460 years before the birth of Abraham. So, between the flood and the birth of Abraham, the land was provided, was divided, I'm sorry, the land was divided in the days of Peleg, about halfway in time between the flood of Noah and the birth of Abraham, which was a little over 1,200 years. I'm sorry. A little low, yeah, 1,230 years, approximately. So halfway between that 1,230 years was the land divided among the nations. Nevertheless, by the time of Abraham, all those nations had gone off into paganism. As Joshua chapter 24 informs us, even of Abraham's own immediate ancestors, that they were pagans. And as Clifton is about to discuss in another and limited perspective, so continuing with Clifton, while preparing for this pamphlet, I happen on some unexpected evidence which I will reproduce here from the New Bible Dictionary, page 549, which may shed some new light on our subject. And it's under the title, Jerah, J-E-R-A-H. 
which is really from the Hebrew word for moon or month. One of the, and it might, in, in my opinion, Yara is actually the original origin of our English word year, being a cycle of a fixed number of lunar months. One of the sons of Joktan, some of whom can be connected with tribes of South Arabia, the name Yara is identical in form with the Hebrew word for month or moon, and the word occurs in the South Arabian inscriptions, spelled just Y-R-H, Yara, with this meaning. So it may be concluded that the descendants of Yara had likewise settled in South Arabia. The site of Beth Yara, the modern Kerbet Karak, on the Sea of Galilee is probably unrelated. It's house of the moon, I would say, and it certainly is unrelated. Notice that the name Yara is identical to that of the moon in Hebrew, this being Clifton's response. Could that be why the Arabs use the crescent moon as their identifying symbol? Or are the Arabs an alien people pretending to be the descendants of Joktan, thus stealing Joktan's heritage? Whatever the case, the Arabs are definitely not a pure race by any stretch of the imagination. If they were, they'd have the complexion of a Caucasian. Rather, they appear more like a Canaanite, and evidence reveals that they are closely genetically related to the bad fig Canaanite Jews whom true Israel was commissioned to exterminate, man, woman, and child, and Clifton citing several passages which state that, or which support that. That may seem severe, but it would be better than pricks and thorns in our eyes. Here Clifton only cited passages which command the children of Israel to destroy the Canaanites. But I do remember that in his earlier writings, he had discussed the connection of the crescent-shaped moon to the worship of the ancient pagan moon god, Sin. And that name, Sin, and our use of the first, of, of our use of English use of the term Sin is probably not a coincidence. Much later, Clifton cited Judges chapter 8, verses 21 and 26, in connection to Arab moon worship. In that passage, we see crescent-shaped ornaments, were a symbol worn by the Midianites in the days of Gideon, about 1,300 years before Christ. The King James Version translates the Hebrew word Saharan, Strong's number 7720, only as ornaments. But there are other words for that. Rather, a Saharan is a particular ornament shaped like a crescent moon. So other versions translate the word in those passages of Judges as crescent ornaments. Evidently, the symbol of the crescent moon is very old among the tribes which ultimately became known as Arabs. Now Clifton returns to the meaning of that word, Arab. The word 
arid in scripture. And of course this is partly a recapitulation of what he had said in the very first paper he wrote on this topic, which included a lengthy letter from myself. The term Arab in the strongest concordance is numbers 6154 and 6151. Strong's defines 6154, Arab or Arab, as being from number 6148 and meaning the web also or transverse threads of cloth, in other words, mixed threads of cloth, also a mixture or mongrel race. Strong's defines 6151 as a verb to commingle, to mingle oneself or mix. The root of this verb in Strong's is 6150 and is defined as a primitive root rather identical with 6148 through the idea of covering with a texture, meaning to grow dusky at sundown, to be darkened. And Clifton makes a note that the mixed in mixed multitude of phrase which appears in Exodus chapter 12 verse 38 and in Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 3 is from that number 6154 Arab multitude a multitude of mixed people he says I don't know whether or not the reader has entirely comprehended the full implications of what he has just read with the above criteria as one's guide in our search for the first biblical Arab it could be none other than Cain, for he was the mixed progeny of the serpent by Eve. Yahweh said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin, and Clifton says interracial sin, lieth at the door, meaning the door of Cain's birth. And, if you are racially pure, unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And I don't agree on that, if you are racially pure. But unto the descendants of Cain were certainly the descendants of Seth's desires. Because the Kenites are history's oldest panderers. And they still are today. I do not remember exactly why Clifton was compelled to repeat in December of 2007 what he had already explained in the summer of 2006. But I can guess. In his pamphlets or brochures as he called his short essays after the format that he published them in Clifton was often answering questions which were raised in correspondence, either from prisoners or through his email, and he often felt that all of his readers would benefit from his answer if he put it into that format. I remember around this time, another so-called pastor was promoting the works of Nord Davis, and that was Eli James. I was receiving correspondence from Clifton, which were copies of emails between Clifton, Eli, 
and our friend Don Brown. And Don was trying to correct Eli on the Arab question. I would have to search my own correspondence, but I think I was also in some degree involved in it in that process. By the time I got out of prison, a year after this paper was published, and I began to do podcasts with Eli James, he had at least pretended to be corrected on the Arab question, if not by myself, by Don and Clifton. But when we split after two years, Eli immediately reverted on the issue and once again began promoting Nord Davis and Star Wars. But it was not for another year that I discovered that one of Eli's own daughters had married an Arab Egyptian. And now I believe that is why, in 2010, he started going in circles on the issue of race in scripture, circles which he is still spinning to this very day. So, continuing with Clifton, to get a better handle on this thing, we need to go to John chapter 8, verses 21 through 24. Then said Yahshua again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this cosmos, I am not of this cosmos. He said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And Clifton here seems to have been citing an early version of my translation of John, before I thought I could prove that the Greek word cosmos could mean society. I chose not to even translate it, since it certainly does not mean world as we know it. Although on occasion I do also use the term world to translate cosmos. Now he continues. Our Messiah was as much telling the bad fig Jews that they would die in their mixed racial sins, which no amount of soap can wash away, citing Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 22, which is also talking about the race mixing of Judah. He was so much as declaring to the bad fig Jews that they were dead men walking, in modern terms, zombies, and zombies are incapable of understanding or believing anything of the spirit. Thus, all racially mixed people, Arabs, are dead men walking, or zombies, without the spirit. All one need do today is go to a shop, go shopping at a supermarket or large department store, and there are zombies, walking dead people, all over the place. Thus, Cain was the first Arab walking dead zombie, and all of the goody-goody two-shoes liberal pastors telling us today that if we curse these bad fig Jewish Arab walking dead zombies, that we will be cursed, and if we bless them, we will be blessed, is pure poppycock. The truth is, if we curse them, we will be blessed, and if we bless them, we will be cursed.
Not only does the lineage of the bad fig Jews go back to Cain, but also the lineage of the Arabs, for they are both mixed with the Canaanite nations listed at Genesis chapter 15, verses 29 through 21. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephames and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. These ten nations race mix so much that at Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 they merged to become only seven. The Kenites, Kenizzites, and Rephaim were completely absorbed by the other nations of this group from which the bad fig Jews are extracted and many of the Arabs. There is plenty of proof of this in Scripture, where after Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, we still see many references to individuals or to small groups of Kenites and Rephaim, but they are no longer listed among the nations. Clifton continues by saying that same thing using yet another citation. The Adam Clark's Commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl, on page 38, has this to say. The Kenites. Here are ten nations mentioned. I guess that's in reference to Genesis chapter 15. Though afterwards reckoned but seven, for which see Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1 and Acts chapter 13 verse 19. Probably some of them which existed in Abram's time had been blended with others before the time of Moses, so that seven only out of the ten then remained. Clifton goes on to say that in the Peaks Commentary on the Bible, page 116, we find this about this mixed group of nations spoken of at Genesis 15:19 through 21 when the Israelites entered Canaan, they found there a very mixed population, generally designated by the term Amorite or Canaanite. So what were originally ten nations is later, and this is Clifton's response, so what were originally ten nations is later, because of absorption by race mixing, designated as seven, and often referred to as an all-inclusive one, the Amorite or Canaanite. In the early Assyrian inscriptions, all of the Canaanites and others west of Babylon, through the Arabian desert and all the way to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, are generally called Amuru or Amorite, regardless of their actual identity. Again, Clifton continues by responding to this citation. There are two nations among these ten needful of further mention, the Kenites and Rephaim. Kenite, Strong's number 7017, is patronymic from 7014, a Kenite or member of the tribe of Cain. And Cain is the name of the first child, Cain. The children of Cain, the Kenites, are mentioned later in the Bible, in Numbers chapter 24, in Judges chapters 1, 4, and 5, in 1 Samuel chapters 15, 27, and 30, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, where it is revealed that some of them became scribes in Judah. Their continued existence shows that they were absorbed into, remaining, into the remaining nations of Canaan, as explained above. Clifton's words. Let's now consider the Rephaim. 
the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, on volume 5, page 64, says this in part, Rephaim, the inhabitants of Transjordan in pre-Israelite times, whom the Moabites and Ammonites respectively called Enim and Zanzumim, giants. Their land is one of ten ethnic groups promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, it says that they were great, many, and tall, like the Anakim, Og, king of Bashan, for example, possessed a king-sized iron bed, nine cubits long, and four cubits broad, that would be thirteen and a half feet by six feet, using the standard cubit. Giants among the Philistines, who fought against David and his mighty men, along with their disputed border, both at Gezer and at Gath. These giants were the descendants of Rapha, the eponymous ancestor of these Rephaim. And Rapha was one of the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6, one of the Anakim, the sons of Anak of the Anakim, were also of the Nephilim. So, Rapha was one notable giant who had a race of giants named after him, and Anak was another notable giant who had a race of giants named after him. Harper's Bible Dictionary, page 345, defines Rephaim as a noun appearing in three contexts in the Bible. 1. Those who were dead and inhabit Sheol. Shade, Psalm 88.10. Dead, Proverbs 9.18, and with that I would disagree. 2. Pre-Israelite inhabitants of Transjordan. 3. Giants from Philistia, and the sources citing several verses of scripture for either one of those. Now, those last two, of course, we would agree with. They were giants. They lived in Philistia, but they were not really from Philistia, but they also dwelt in the Transjordan. There's no doubt, right? And there's no reason to debate with that. As for the first interpretation, Actually, Psalm 88.10 has the Hebrew version of the word rephaim, where the King James Version has the second occurrence of the word dead. It should not have been translated as dead. It actually sits in contradistinction to the first occurrence, and the verse should read, Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the rephaim arise and praise thee? One event would be just as wondrous as the other. But the author made such a statement because the Rephaim would not be expected to see the wonders of Yahweh. The Rephaim were a race of bastards related to the race of the Nephilim mentioned as giants in Genesis chapter 6. Their descendants still exist among both Arabs and Jews today. Now Clifton continues from another perspective. Let's now check with Ezra chapter 9 verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from among the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites.' 
For they have taken of their daughters for themselves, and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yeah, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. And to this, Clifton responds, I have already shown the connection of the bad fig Jews with the Genesis chapter 15, 10 nations in other essays. But Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 24 connects the terms Arabia and mingled people into one and the same as follows. And all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert. The second statement simply reinforces the first. And I must say that concerning Ezra 9, these words were spoken in the perspective following the return from Babylon. The people that participated in this race mixing, which Ezra mentions here, participated in it after the return from Babylon. These are the people who would comprise the later Judeans. Now, Ezra, for the most part, had repaired this situation, but the repair was only temporary. It repeated itself again in the days of Nehemiah. Then in Malachi, who was 150 years after Ezra, the last prophet of the Bible, Malachi, had chastised the Levites of his own time because they started race mixing again and condemned Judea and the people of Judah in Judea at that time because they had married themselves to the children of a strange god. He made an allegorical representation of that and said that Judah had married himself to the daughter of a strange god. And he said that, and it goes back to Judah, the original patriarch, because he had a Canaanite wife, but he was using Judah as an example for what was going on in his own time, that the people of Judah were doing the same thing once again. And the people of Judah at Malachi's time were not descendants of the Canaanite woman. They were descendants of Tamar from Pharez and Zara. Now the feature of Hebrew grammar that Clifton speaks about in Jeremiah chapter 25 where it says, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert, that is called a parallelism. A parallelism is used quite frequently in the words of the prophets, and even in the New Testament, where the same concept is expressed twice consecutively using different terms. Now Clifton concludes... In Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, Christ told the bad fig Jews that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed, from, shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And he says, had they not been Cain's literal descendants, Joshua could not have made that statement. 
Had the bad fig Jews not been Cain's literal descendants, he would have been bearing false witness, a crime worthy of death. Yes, Cain was the zombie who killed Abel, and akin to the satanic walking dead Arabs, as Clifton has already shown. The Arabs are every bit as Canaanite in their origin as the Jews. Since the Arabs are descended from the Canaanite, to the same extent as the Jews, if not to an even greater extent, they are every bit as liable as the Jews to all of the curses which have been uttered upon the races of Cain, Canaan, Esau, and the Rephaim. Christians must therefore have nothing to do with Arabs. In our last segments of this series, we established the fact that Cubans and other so-called Hispanics of the Caribbean and South and Central America are actually descended to a great degree from both Arabs and Jews. Essentially, through at least 1,400 years of intermingling, Hispanics are not much more than a branch of the same race as Arabs and Jews. When we return to this subject, we shall discuss another branch of the Jewish and Arab people, which are now called Mexicans. Hopefully that will not be until late April, and first we will return to our commentary on the Gospel of John. As I wrote this this morning, I was receiving news and watching video of a young white man in New Zealand who walked into a mosque in New Zealand with some semi-automatic rifles and killed 49 sand maggots. He killed 49 Islamic Arabs in this mosque. Now, of course, we cannot condone the purposeful acts of violence. All I can say is what's, what it says in the scripture. Blessed is he who bashes their little ones against the rocks. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.